Hi, my name is Pete Scazzaro, and I want to welcome you here today to the Emotionally Healthy Leader Podcast. Today, I'm going to share a message with you uh, from our 2017 uh, summit here at uh, in New York City, and it's called John the Baptist, the Unlikely Emotionally Healthy Leader. John the Baptist, the emotion, the unlikely emotionally healthy leader, and uh, John the Baptist is a figure that I have loved studying and learning from uh, for years, and he really is unlikely as an emotionally healthy leader because he was so strange. Uh, I mean, the guys crude, he's rough, he's almost fanatical, he doesn't care about his food or clothing, uh, living in the desert, and he merges, uh, you know, and, and has a very short ministry, and then his head is cut off and he's gone. Uh, but he's he's extraordinary for three reasons, and a, and a great model for us uh, of leadership, because number one, he, he's, he's a very, he knows himself and he knows God, he's very clear about who he is and who he's not. And uh, even though he came from a highly respected family, his father was a a priest, Zachariah, and a Levite. Uh, he was the oldest son, firstborn, so he should have been a priest as well, but he doesn't go the respectable route. And he sets up basically a church in a desert after many years, and people have to travel to him. Talk about a bad strategy. Uh, he doesn't go to Jerusalem in his 20s and build a network and platform, and he just seems like he's wasting his time in his desert. But he's just, he's just so free uh, from performing and impressing people. And when the Pharisees and the Sadducees show up at his church in the desert, uh, he doesn't preach um, in front of them. In other words, he wasn't a conscious of himself. He preaches to them, just like anybody else who's there in the audience. He's just he's free from impressing people and performing. He's not a show off. He uh, he doesn't care what people think of him. And uh, you know, we tend to show special respect to people who are celebrities and wealthy and powerful and beautiful and the smartest. Not for John. He has just got a deep walk with God out of the desert, and uh, he knows himself, and he knows God, and he's just free uh, from people, and he's concerned about, obviously, the notice of the Father. But the second great thing about John the Baptist, as you hear this message, is he's just so clear about what the problem is. Uh, and the problem is a, a kind of a cultural religion, a cultural Christianity, we call it today, where uh, people know the Bible and they're praying, they're going to church and they're serving, but they do not really have a vital dynamic relationship with Jesus, uh, with a living God. And he attacks their pride, he attacks their false security, and he calls them, you brood of vipers. Um, it's amazing, actually. And one of the great uh, learnings I had in my journey in these last 22 plus years in emotionally healthy discipleship has been recognizing that so many people in our churches, the large majority, uh, are not cultivating a personal relationship with Jesus. In other words, they accept the Christ at some point, uh, you know, walk the sawdust trail. They're in our churches. They even go to small group and attend, but they're not vitally living in loving union with Jesus or abiding with Jesus. They're not cultivating that relationship with God. And it's a shock when you actually dig under the surface and find out what people are doing to cultivate their relationship with God. And I'll give you a little example of a person, uh, you know, in our church, because I, I was, I, I asked for years, I was asking people about what they do to cultivate their relationship with God. I kept being shocked and shocked and shocked. And, um, so as, as many of you know, in, in the Emotionally Healthy Discipleship course, uh, part one and two, it's built on the daily office, people learning to spend time with Jesus. And so they're learning silence, stillness, and, and a rhythm with Jesus. 
And uh, so every week when they get together, they say, how did it go this past week? What obstacles did you, you know, ha- come in your life to spend time with Jesus and silence and stillness in the daily office? And uh, it's kind of a way of a soft accountability, and but trying to help people get a rhythm of being with Jesus in relationship. It's really hard for people. And, you're, and, you're, and it's when you realize, oh my gosh, people are not in relationship. So there's this woman in our church who, who uh, had been a missionary and, uh, you know, raises her hands up in worship, serve, serves, gives money, et cetera. And uh, she was sitting at a table and her leader had come to me and said, listen, Pete, everyone at my table is having a really hard time with the daily office, you know, spending time with God during the week. And so this woman was at the table. I said, oh, I can't believe you're here. Like, well, what do you do to spend time with God? She goes, oh, it's so hard. I'm so busy. And I'm thinking, my gosh, she's been a Christian like decades, you know, and so committed. And and she says, well, I, I listen to the radio uh, when I go to work, Christian radio. I said, oh, that's good. How long is the ride to work? She's about 10 minutes. I said, well, do you do anything, do you do anything else to cultivate your relationship with Jesus? You know, she goes, I, I, I go into the chapel at work. And I said, oh, good. What do you do when you get to the chapel at work? He said, I just sit there in silence. How often do you go? Uh, once or twice a week. Do you open the Bible? She goes, no, nah, I go five, 10 minutes. I sit there, you know, I pray and then I go. I said, do you do anything else to uh, cultivate your relationship with Jesus? She goes, no, that's about it. I said, oh my gosh, you know, and uh, she's one of our, I, I thought one of our more mature people. And, and so John the Baptist recognized that there's, there's, there's something deeply missing. In fact, John the Baptist goes after the leaders in particular. And uh, so again, that's why for us, the core of emotionally discipleship is getting people deeply connected to the living God in Jesus Christ. Uh, it's the most difficult part of the church, part of, of the course. Uh, and I believe the greatest challenge we have in the church today, and John recognizes that. But uh, there's a, a third issue, and that John recognizes his limits. I mean, he realizes that uh, as great as his ministry was, he can't remove sin, and he sure can't release the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, that's God's job. And all he can do is help position people uh, so that God can meet them. You know, repentance. Uh, he points away from himself to the supernatural power of Jesus. And uh, in the same way, we can't change people. That is the work of God. Uh, that is his. That is his. And uh, so let me invite you as you listen to this message to, um, again, join us in our uh, our journey of changing and the, the way the church does discipleship, uh, both in the United States, North America, and around the world. Uh, we have a dream of people deeply connected to Jesus at all ages, teens, singles, married, all ages, middle age, and out of a life of, of vibrancy, a cup running over, uh, we have a mature communities pulsating with the life of Jesus. And uh, so join us, get the kit the Discipleship Leaders Kit. Uh, get yourself trained. Every month we're doing a live stream training of how do you do this in a church and actually do the course uh, so we can develop disciples who actually make disciples. So again, join us at emotionallyhealthy.org. Visit us there and uh, learn more. But let me encourage you now as you go to enjoy this message on John the Baptist, the unlikely emotionally healthy leader. The world is changing faster, much faster than, than we think. Uh, Eric Teller, who's the CEO of Google's uh, Research and Development Lab, uh, writes about how a thousand years ago, when there was a scientific or technological breakthrough, uh, it would take a hundred years for the world to look different or feel different. In the, in the 19, by 1900, when there was a technological breakthrough like the creation of the car or the airplane, it would take about 20 to 30 years for the world to look different. But he says now in 2017, when there's a technological breakthrough, uh, the whole world has changed within five to seven years. 
uh, whether it's mobile devices or broadband connectivity or cloud computing, that we can't keep pace, that, 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 the, that the rate of change is so fast that's going on around us that we, really, we can't absorb all the changes. And uh, uh, Swenson, who's a uh, well-known author, futurist, talks about the speed of change. And he has a nice little graph here as he traces human history that we have 5,000 years of recorded human history. And he says that the last 30 years has been so much change. If you compare it to all the rest of human history, the rest of human history change has been like a flat line. That's how quickly things are changing around us in the world. Even the Industrial Revolution of the 1700s, the 1900s, is even part of that flat line. But that gives you a sense of the dizzying pace that we're all living in uh, today around the world. I mean, Estonia, in the Baltic states and Eastern Europe, they teach computer coding in the first grade. Could you imagine? I mean, did you ever imagine that with Amazon invented a one-click checkout that, I mean, talk about fast, free, easy, you know, invisible, one-click, and you're getting that whatever you order, sometimes now the same day, okay, by airplane, okay, drone. I mean, just in terms of, you know, Ray Kurzweil from Google also says this, the 21st century, the next 100 years, will be equivalent to the last 20,000 years of progress at today's rate. That's speed, everybody. I mean, just think with me for a moment, of present-day sexuality and gender classifications. Okay, there are now 70 sexual orientations. There are 112 genders that you can choose from to identify yourself. And there are now 54 words to speak to people pronoun-wise. And if you're involved in government service here in the United States or a, a nonprofit. Like my children are, you go through, you're going, they're going through training conferences on how to speak to people, you, he, she, you know, whatever words they want to use, Z. And, uh, and so, like cohabitation, you know, when I first started pastoring, uh, if someone was cohab, Christians were cohabitating, they would be like embarrassed. They come to the premarital training, and now they come and they're saying, will you please come and, they're cohabitating, they'll say, will you please come and bless our apartment? And there is zero sense of, like, embarrassment. It's, it's the norm that young people in our churches live together before they get married. And, again, that's a new global phenomenon. I mean, reading Scripture, I mean, there's been lots of studies that are trying to get a handle on the decrease of people in Scripture. No one has a, 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 an exact research science for it. But it's been said, and I think properly so, that only about 1% of folks who identify themselves as Christians and Christ followers and evangelical churches have actually read the Bible through once. And uh, even seminaries in North America all report a decline in people even coming to a uh, seminary to be pastors and leaders. I have a friend who consults with uh, some very large churches around the country. And uh, he uh, says to me all the time, because Pete, you have no under understanding about it's almost impossible. It's extremely difficult for large churches to do discipleship. I mean, serious discipleship. Because all the attention, all the staff, all the energy is focused on three things. Worship attendance, get people on Sundays or weekend services, get them in a small group, get them connected so they stay in relationships, and thirdly, get them serving. And the assumption is they do those three things, these people will be discipled in Christ. And as Barner has showed in the most recent study done, commissioned by the Navigators, uh, that there is a crisis of discipleship in the church today. And 
uh, they found that only 1% of church leaders say the churches are doing very well at discipling new and young believers and that participation in discipleship activities is weak, as low as 20% in our churches. And that was just another confirmation of multiple studies that have been done over the last 10 to 15 years about the state of discipleship in churches, again, primarily in North America, uh, that it is a crisis that we're in. Uh, and I have a friend who's a church, one of my closest friends uh, is a church historian. He's like one of the leading global church historians in the world, teaches at Fuller Seminary. And uh, we were talking about Islam in the seventh century and some of the parallels today. And, and his, part of his argument is that with, Islam was a phenomenon in, in the seventh century because within a hundred years, uh, Islam actually conquered North Africa, the Mideast, uh, the Byzantine Empire, all the way to Turkey, and then parts of Europe uh, until 732 when it was militarily stopped uh, at Tours. But what was so interesting, it wasn't just a military conquest, it was actually the church collapsed. Uh, during that time, uh, at a rate that was what was almost, it was a historical phenomenon. And his argument that there's two reasons that it collapsed. One is that they never bothered to translate the scriptures into Arabic, the church at that time. And that they didn't have any vision for discipleship. Uh, people were not reading the Bible in their own language. And so when Islam came, they just became Muslims. Uh, it was too difficult, too, too, too challenging. And then secondly, he said the church was divided. Uh, they were killing each other over doctrine. Uh, there were struggles over power and control in the church. They were not unified under the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. And thus, when that moment came, they just were unable to withstand the onslaught. Uh, it, it's much like, to me, like the worldview of Babylon when, in Daniel's day. when you know, Babylon in Scripture represents worldliness all the way through the book of Revelation. And behind Babylon is, is, is demonic powers. But literally, Babylon, when it conquered uh, the southern kingdom of Judah in 586, and they carried away Daniel and all his friends to, uh, to Babylon, and Daniel was in the best university and learning all this pagan astrology and uh, magic and sorcery, and he was immersed in the literature and history and mathematics and medicine and religion of Babylon. They changed his name. Their whole desire was to assimilate Daniel. Uh, to any distinctiveness he had as a, as a God follower, Babylon sought to eliminate it. Uh, we are not living in a very different age today. That what's coming at us is so rapid, so vast, so powerful into our churches that our people are being more shaped by the culture, television, technology, media, than they are by us in church. And we find ourselves overwhelmed in the issue of discipleship. So we've got a big problem that requires a big solution. And so I want to talk to you about John the Baptist today. And... Uh, First, as a messenger, who he was, and then actually his message itself. And, and, and the passage I want to refer to is, is Matthew chapter 3, and uh, where we see in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, in the desert, and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And it says, John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey, and people were coming out to him from all over Judea, etc. Now, we, we forget that John the Baptist... You know, he, he came from a very honored, highly respectable family. Remember, his father was Zechariah. He's one of, the, one of the top priests in Israel and the Holy of Holies. His father was a Levite. He should have been, he was the firstborn son. He should have been a priest. He should have been going to the best schools and functioning in that temple with his father. Um, as the eldest son, John was expected to be a priest. Uh, but he did not go that respectable route. And, and uh, he's, he, he disappears 
in the desert, and he emerges at a moment in time, and he's a voice, you know, howling in the wilderness, literally. It's, he's a voice calling. He's, he's almost screaming. And uh, he sets up a church, you know, think about strategicness, church planters. He sets up a church in the desert, all right? People have got to come to him. They've got to travel to get to this guy. But he's got this, you know, the passage has this great urgency to it because he knows God's about to do a world-changing event, a nuclear explosion, a new world is coming. The Messiah is showing up. And if people don't turn around, okay, in repentance, they're going to be very sorry. And, uh, but this guy, John, is rough. He's crude. He's, he, he's, he's almost fanatical. You know, he, he, he's not even thinking about food and clothing. And I mean, it's just, it's just irrelevant to him. He, he's just consumed with the kingdom of God. And I, I'll summarize like this. John is completely free from performing and impressing people. He, John is completely free from performing and, and impressing people. He does not show off. He's not ostentatious. He, he's, not, he's surely not trying to get people's approval. Uh, and, but what's interesting, when the Pharisees and Sadducees show up, now understand, in ancient Israel, the Pharisees and Sadducees, these are like the celebrities. These are, this would be like the most famous people in the country. These are the, the top dogs, the, the most highly educated. Everybody wants to get near the Sadducees and the Pharisees. I mean, they're the pious ones, and they've got the money, they've got the power, they've got the social position, and uh, they've got the PhDs. John, and I, I've, I've preached in front of, you know, famous people before, and I know the struggle it is, and I'm sure you've had the experience too, when someone that you really want their approvals, like in the first row, and you're actually preaching to them, kind of, you know. John's not preaching in front of them. He actually preaches to them. I want you to catch the distinction. He's not, he's not preaching in front of them. It's irrelevant to him. He's just preaching to them as he's preaching to everybody else. We tend to show special respect and to really important people. We get out of the way for them. Uh, John is not that at all. You know, we all, we all want to be noticed. You know, little children you know, grow up and dad, notice me. I'm on the soccer field. You know, here I am. And, and, and the challenge is as adults, we tend to carry that in that we too have this kind of deep need to be noticed. You know, like, notice me. And the problem is that we were actually created to be noticed by God. That we looked at that final judgment day that, that God will say, well done. When John has one eye, it's, it's to the Father. And, uh, and Jesus talked about that. We're not to do things to impress people. Praying, giving, fasting. And he says, be careful not to do your righteousness in front of people. To be seen by them. Or else you'll get no reward from your Father in heaven. He's the one you want to be noticed by. And Jesus knows that you may, get, you may impress people. Impressive people impress, but they don't get rewarded. They get rewarded in this life, but not in the afterlife. John is just free from all that. And a revival, Josephus, the, the Jewish historian, tells us that a revival happens when John the Baptist shows up. But John the Baptist is so clear. I went to a, uh, it, it, um, if the axe is dull and its edge unsharpened, more strength is needed, but skill will bring success. John, John is just, from Ecclesiastes 10.10, John is just really clear. He, he's a sharp axe. And so when he speaks, it's got a, an edge to it. It's got, it's got a power to it because of who he is as a person from those years uh, he emerges in the desert. You know, I went to a, a theater uh, in New Jersey uh, this past year, and uh, Jerry and I, and uh, it was called, uh, you know, the Beach Theater. And, uh, and I went to the bathroom. Nothing too impressive. 
but in that bathroom, there was a, you see that little white thing there? There was a little sign there. I, I read this, and here's what it says. It says, this urinal is dedicated to George H. Moffat, a devoted user and favorite Palace Theater Beach Cinema patron since 1935. And what I was so struck by is that, like, All the time that I and we spend as leaders trying to impress people. Like, that's what it's worth. You know what I mean? That, that's it. Like, like, it doesn't mean anything. It... But John the Baptist actually is so free. He actually has that perspective. He knows it's irrelevant. So he's just so free as he's preaching and as he's leading and again, you've got to try to imagine the pressure he was under with these Pharisees and Sadducees all in the front row. And uh, he, shouldn't he have started his ministry in his 20s uh, and moved to Jerusalem and built a platform and a network before he launched? Uh, he wasted a lot of time, but he knows that if the axe is dull and its edge unsharpened, more strength is needed. He, 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 he's getting sharp. Those years in the desert with the Father... Uh, He's getting deeper. You know, Abraham Lincoln once said, give me six hours to chop down a tree and I'll spend the first four sharpening the ax. John the Baptist is a sharp ax as a person. And you cannot give what you do not possess. We can only give what we do possess. And John does that here. You know, my daughter's boyfriend uh, has a boyfriend from Australia. And he came to visit us. I know, an amen from Australians here, you know. And he's a mason, so he builds like stone walls and stone homes. And when he came to visit, uh, he was so excited because the most important thing he wanted to do besides see my daughter was he wanted to get to Vermont and uh, buy some tools. And I was like, you came here and you're so excited about going to Vermont to buy these tools. He goes, absolutely. He goes, there's only two places in the world that you can get the best tools for masonry. One in Germany and a second here in Vermont. And uh, so uh, here it is. It's called Trow and Holden. And uh, this, this place, Trow and Holden, that makes tools for masons, uh, they only have 20 employees. They've been around since 125 years. But if you're going to be an employee at Trow and Holden, uh, it's a four-year apprenticeship in tool making. And uh, they're very, they say they're proud to offer the highest quality and wildest variety of stoneworking tools available. So if you want to buy a, a, a hammer, okay, I go to Home Depot in Queens, New York. It costs me $6.97, all right? At Trow and Holden, it could cost up to $650, okay? Because of the quality of hammer, that is. And it's got some, you know, certain materials in it. And, and now, say you want to buy some chisels. Now, I go to Amazon. I get four chisels for $29.99. Okay, you want to get some excellent chisels, um, you can spend up to $1,400. But, again, they, they, there's four-point chisels, nine-point chisels, brushing chisels, cup chisel, double blade. I mean, there's all kinds of, who knew there's all these chisels? But here's what this fellow Brett said to me about, as we were talking, he laid these tools out on my uh, living room floor. He says, if I buy my tools at Home Depot, I can work with a, only certain types of stone, like limestone. They're cheaper, they're softer, but those tools from Trow and Holden, I can work with any stone of the highest quality, and we, so we have to work harder and longer, but we do quality work, but we can work with any stone in the world. 
The person of John the Baptist is such a person, he can go anywhere in the world and speak for God because he's so anchored deeply in God himself. Over the years, he's been formed in that desert and he is so free to impress or perform or to be noticed by people. Uh, I was at a, I was less past month uh, the, the heads of all the doctor of ministry programs in North America came to New York City area for their annual meeting. And so they asked me to come and speak to them. There was only there was 34 of them. They lead the doctoral programs in the seminaries. And they wanted to talk about emotional anti spirituality and their programs, because a lot of them are using the different books. And so we talked about, you know, some of the different books of emotional anti spirituality. And, uh, but then we got to the issue of application. How do you use this? And, 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 uh, and have, you have to live this material. You just can't talk about it from book. And then one of the directors of one of the seminaries said, you know, Pete, this EHS thing is just, it's just so radical. It's good. It just upsets people, you know, if you, if you push it too far. And so we talked about courage and the need for discipleship. And then we got to the issue of faculty, that how can the faculty teach this if they don't live it? And Finally, the president, and we, no, these are a very cordial discussion. They were all with it, you know, and we were talking about the challenges of you know, higher education and financial and all the, they have tremendous pressure on them to keep the programs going and wonderful people. But the president of this, uh, all the theological school stood up and said, guys, let's be honest. He goes, we have a big problem. He goes, at my seminary, the most popular professor by far in the doctoral program and the, the master's of divinity program by far uh, was found out last year uh, in a scandal, or two years ago, in a scandal of Ashley Madison. Some of you know that. Uh, it was a website where you go, you want to have an affair, you're married with another married person. It was a secretive website. It got hacked in, and they published all the names of the people who were on that site. So a student found this professor's name, told the authorities in the school. He got called into the president's office in the morning. Uh, that afternoon, he committed suicide. And he says, let's, and he said, he said it shook our whole institution because this was the number one most popular guy because he was a close friend of mine. I had no idea. And he says, everything is not okay. Everything is not okay. And if we don't get our lives together first, where are we going? And so when we think about transformation this process of discipleship being formed, we've got to become sharp. We, in this room, those of you watching live stream, we've got to become, by God's grace, sharp instruments that God can use and take the time to allow him to shape us. Changed people will change the world. John the Baptist understood that. And so when he started, there was an impact. But there's a second thing I want to talk to you about today, not just that, us and our lives, because that, that's our life work. That is our most important work uh, here as leaders. But secondly, I, I want to talk to you about the message of John. As one scholar has written, his sermon in Matthew 3 is perhaps one of the greatest sermons outside of Jesus ever given in history. And, uh, but he's very clear about the problem. You know, Einstein once said reportedly, that if I have to solve a problem, he said, and I only have one hour, I will spend the first 55 minutes determining what's the question. Once I get to the question, I can solve the problem in probably five minutes. 
but I've got to determine what really is the problem. And uh, John identifies the problem. And he basically says to everybody, speaking now to the church, the people of God in that desert, and he says, your relationship with God is superficial, you've got a false security, and you're proud. Now, until John the Baptist arrived on the scene, the only people that were baptized were Gentiles. Baptism was used by the Jews for those pagan, contaminated, polluted Gentiles to come and get washed clean, and then they could be with, with, the, with God's people. But it was for them. Now, John comes and says, no, no, you don't get it. Everybody's got to get baptized. Everybody's polluted. Everybody's contaminated. Everybody's got to get washed in those waters of baptism. And there's a shock. And he calls them, you brood of vipers. I mean, basically means you pack of snakes. And what a, I mean, what a, what a thing to say to the most godly people in the whole country. These folks are praying five times a day. They're memorizing most of the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. Look at your Bible. That's a lot of pages, okay? <laughs> They're meticulous about giving and the law. They fast twice a week. Again, I, I struggle with fasting for a meal two days a week. But they're unkind, they're condescending, they're cold, they're, they're not soft, they're, they're not compassionate. And John's message is this. The major problem he's saying to them is not, it, the major problem is you. It's the church. It's not the pagans out there. It, it's not the idolaters. It, it, it's, not, it's not the Roman occupation. It's not the economy that we're suffering under the Romans. It's not anything external, social threats, economic threats, political threats. The, the number one problem is you, he says. And we think the problem is the culture. Uh, we think it's the entertainment industry. We think it's the internet. We think it's the educational system. We think it's our government. We think it's ISIS. We think it's the wars going on in the world in places like Syria. We think it's the breakdown of the family. We think it's porn and drugs. We think it's those outsiders, the pedophiles and murderers and, and rapists and swindlers and liars and all those really bad people. And John said, no, the enemy is not out there. The enemy actually is us. And it's the believers in the church. And he actually says, not just the believers in the church, it's the leadership. It's me, it's us. And John the Baptist, he, he attacks their, their sense of security and their pride and, and this kind of grasping for power and climbing the ladder and being relevant and position. And, and he says, you pack of snakes. Don't you get it? God can raise up from these stones. He can raise up children of Abraham. And he says, this revolution of John is, it's for insiders first, not the outsiders. You see, you can have Jesus in your, in your bones, but not in your heart. And you're going to hear a reverse of that to, uh, later. In other words, people can say, I'm a Christian. My family's Christian. I grew up in a Christian way of life. My family went to church. I, I'm drawn to church. I love worship. I get moved in worship. They make, it makes me cry sometimes. I, I melt. And, and I'm very familiar. People are so familiar with Jesus. And they serve. And, but, but we've got people in our churches that don't actually have a personal relationship with Jesus. I mean, they, got, like they, they love church and, and they're serving and doing stuff. But, but there's something missing of this deep union relationship with Jesus. And John's message to them is repent. Everybody turn around. The main thing is we've got to change our life direction. He's not talking about secular repentance. If you look in Greek literature, which means change your mind, 
He's talking about biblical repentance, which is change your whole life direction. And, uh, you know, I, I like you know, my, my entire life moving to him, where I'm surrendering to his will, I'm receiving his love, I'm listening to his voice, but my whole direction in life has changed. And I like what Luther said uh, in his 95 thesis, when our Lord and Master Jesus said repent, he wanted the whole life of a believer to be a life of repentance. Repentance is a continual, Christian's continual posture. We live a life of repentance, of turning to him. And uh, because I, like you, I'm like the mass of all humanity, uh, I too need to be constantly turning around to Jesus in a life of repentance. I... Uh, being poor in spirit. This is what, blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, you know, the first word of that Sermon on the Mount, that's the strongest word for poverty in the Greek language that Jesus used to start the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That is, we are completely dependent. Uh, we are at the bottom of the bottom. Uh, we can't live without God's supernatural help and intervention. You know, I, I wonder, did the leaders in front of John, did they actually get into the water? the Pharisees and Sadducees, did they have it in them to get dunked in front of all those people? I don't know. It's doubtful. It would have taken a great deal. But John recognizes even as great as his ministry is, and he has a great ministry, this guy, and Jesus calls him the greatest of all in, you know, Matthew 11, but he can't remove sin. He can't give the Holy Spirit to change people. And uh, later he says, you know, I baptize with water, but someone's coming after me who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire and all that. And, but he points people to Jesus because he knows he, he, he doesn't have the supernatural power to change anybody. That's, that's, that's God's work. And, uh, you know, I, I love this. I love the picture of the, of, of that because in some ways we lead our churches. We're, we're helpless to change anybody, but we can't change people, but we can help get them in a position where God can change them. We, we can position them in, in, their, in our discipleship with them that they can receive power from the Holy Spirit and get their sin removed by Jesus. But we have a massive problem in the church today, everybody. It's a massive problem, just like in John's day, and that people's relationship with God is superficial. Uh, they've got a false security and pride that everything's fine, climbing the wrong ladders in life. And the depth of the problem, I, as I've watched this thing, it's becoming more and more and more glaring as the weight of the culture in, falls on the church. I began to see the problem actually in 1994 uh, with our own Spanish church split here at New Life. We were trying to bridge racial, cultural, economic, and gender barriers, and I realized that the type of discipleship we did in the evangelical church was not going to change, did not change people deeply enough to actually overcome racism. To actually live in community with Asians and Latinos and African Americans and rich and poor. I mean, that kind of discipleship to live in community over decades together, that would take significant transformation. And I realized at that point, early on, we don't do that level of discipleship in the church. And we had a big problem. And then, of course, you know about Jerry's misery and quitting the church and all that stuff, but why go into that? <laughs> but I, I began to struggle with different paradigms of discipleship, and you've all read about them in the books, everything from Bible study and prayer and fellowship and the gifts of the Spirit and deliverance and all. And, and I believe in all the paradigms that are that I just mentioned there and the classic ones we use, but I knew there was something, there was something still missing here. And, uh, and God met us. He met us in 1996, 21 years ago. And uh, it's been an unfolding journey for, for 21 years to build a discipleship that deeply changes people and get a handle on that. But it became very obvious to us that if we don't, if we don't 
if we're gonna do mission in the world, and I'm passionate to see people know Jesus, we have gotta do serious discipleship. That if we're gonna develop leaders for the future, we've gotta do serious discipleship. If we're gonna have vibrant worship, we've gotta have people connected to Jesus and doing serious discipleship. If we're gonna have a real community that's a counterculture to what's out there, we've gotta do vibrant and serious discipleship. And so we are about equipping the church in a discipleship that deeply changes people for the sake of the world. That's what we're about here. That's the focus of the conference. And we are trying to, we're, we're seeking to move this modern day discipleship model, which is about crowds, get people attending. And I'm into crowds and connecting and serving only. And you get a little trickle to the world and impact to, to getting back to Jesus' strategy with, yes, he did the masses, but he was focused on discipleship with those three and the 12 and then 70 and 500. But as we know, we got 2.3 billion people that identify themselves as Christians today. But Jesus' method was slow, was countercultural, uh, but it worked. And so we got our two pillars of, EA, of what we call EHS today. The first pillar is that emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. We're going to be unpacking that. Uh, and we're not saying that this is optional. We're saying that it's indispensable. It's inseparable to grow into maturity without addressing some of these emotional components that we're going to unfold the rest of today, family of origin, et cetera. But I agree with what a, what a professor said many years ago that ate about the church, 85% of people in our churches are stuck spiritually. They're just stuck. They're lifeless. They don't have the, the theology and the breath to actually go through the walls that they're confronting. And EHS, secondly, is about a slowdown spirituality, silence, stillness. And we're drawing from the riches of 2,000 years of the church. Uh, and we're, we're, we're translating it into the 21st century. Uh, we know EHS is powerful, it's transformative, but it's got to be experienced. Uh, it's slow. Uh, and so uh, we're moving the church by God's grace from a traditional discipleship, which just get people connected, serving, and giving, and that's going to somehow do discipleship, and you have a little bit of an impact in the world. We are moving to a transformative model by God's grace where we do deep discipleship in people, and the impact is much greater and larger, much the way Christ did it. But we know that getting people connected to Jesus is the most difficult task. And so the core of everything we're doing at these EHS courses is being with Jesus, silence, solitude, loving union, rhythms, listening, practicing his presence, people having a firsthand spirituality and not living off other people's spirituality. And so it's taken us 21 years. Listen, I, I don't like programs. We're from New Yorkers. We tend to be cynical towards a lot of things. And we're not program uh, people. It's taken us this long to actually come to grips that we need a programmatic element to this if we're going to see the churches be changed in terms of how we do discipleship. And so you'll notice this on your page 11 of your workbook there. Uh, we've, we've finally, you know, over this period landed on two core discipleship courses to install in churches, much like Alpha, in a regular repeated basis that forms the DNA and foundation of how we do discipleship here in our church, we call the EH Spirituality Course and the EH uh, Relationships Course. And uh, it's the two of them together that have its impact. And uh, so the, the, the Spirituality Course, the first course is primarily focused on loving God. And each of these themes are so large that in and of themselves could be an eight-week study. But it's meant to be an introduction to a discipleship that's large outside traditional, the way people think about discipleship, but things like 
you know, go back to go forward. We'll deal with later. Journey through the wall, grief and loss, you know, developing a rule of life. Introducing people to these new themes that are, that are large enough to shift the way I live my life. To live out this repentance of my life is oriented around God. And then the second course, equally important, is what's called the relationships course. Which is eight skills refined over these 21 years of how do I love people? How do I actually do it? We tell people love, love, but they don't know how to actually walk it out. And it's these two courses, but the center of the two courses is the daily office, is being with Jesus. But our goal is not to spread ideas. Our goal is transformation of people's lives by Jesus. And so here it is, is these two courses interlock together. Loving God, loving people, but it's a big pill to swallow. It's a really big pill to swallow. But I set that introduction for you because we've got a big problem. And all this is doing is introducing people to a discipleship that deeply changes lives for the sake of the world. It's not the whole package, but just as a, even an introduction, as a foundation, as a start, it is big in and of itself. So this past year, we've updated the courses. You've just gotten, this is the release of, this, of the Spirituality Course Participants Manual. You just got it today. You know, it's our gift to you. Sorry for those of you online. Sorry about that. Uh, and the relationship course, which we've had here at New Life over the last, you know, seven, eight years, uh, is coming out in August, uh, published by Zondervan. So we just reshot it, and it's coming out, you know, for the world, the two courses together. And so we're very excited about that. It's been a lot of work for us. But we're so, we're so committed to this that this is not a small group material, like just, you know, light discipleship getting together. We develop checklists that people, as they go through the course, like you check it off that you actually did it. You completed the course. It doesn't mean you're changed, but at least it means you've completed the course. And that we'll actually... <laughs> Because we found that when people did it as small groups uh, material, they would take the eight-week course, they make it four weeks. And they got so, they get rid of the daily office, oh, it's, silence is too difficult, let's get rid of that. And so we basically said, no, no, we're giving you some tight parameters here. And uh, we'll send you a certificate of completion, you know, you, on our website after you finish. But that's how serious we've become and focused on it, realizing how difficult it is in this global culture we're living in for people to actually focus on discipleship. And, uh, and so, and this conference uh, here today, what, you're, what we're doing is we're taking the material that is found in these two courses and we are applying them to a leadership level. You got that? So we're, with every theme we're touching on here for the rest of this conference, we are taking what's found in the, the spirituality course and the relationships course that we bring to our churches, but we are bringing it here on a leadership level. Now, many of you have read the Emotional Leader book, which really is the application to boards and staff teams and leaderships of how do I actually implement this on a or high organizational level. So, do you understand? So, we're doing this conference on two levels. One, yes, we want to equip you to bring it to your church on a discipleship level, but this is a leadership conference. So, we are bringing you a, a high-level leadership application because, again, we know the deeper it gets into you, the deeper it's going to get in your church. If it's not in you, it's just another program. You might as well throw it down the, down the toilet bowl because we don't need another program. We need Jesus in our people, but we've got, we can't give it to him unless we've got it in our lives somewhat first. And, uh, and so we need, I'll close with this, friends. We need John the Baptist leaders. I want to be a John the Baptist. I mean, he's highly differentiated. He's clear. He is a sharp tool in the hands of God. He is unafraid. He's able to speak prophetically. He sees the problem, but he has a tremendous hope for the future. He is burning with a hope for the future. 
of what God wants to do in Israel and the world. And so we, we believe there is, a, there is this kind of a movement going on that, that just happened around us that we're calling EHS, that we're trying to be good stewards of and give it away as best we can you know, to the world. But we believe there is something incredible afoot that there's a movement of this going on around the world and we're one piece of that. But we actually have a dream. And I'll close with this. We have a dream of thousands and thousands of churches around the world that are actually doing a discipleship that deeply changes people. And these folks in our churches are growing up to be mothers and fathers of the faith. They're oak trees. And they're solid regardless of what's shaking around them. We have a dream of a new army of, of Ephesians 4 leaders, apostles and pastors and prophets and teachers and evangelists uh, who are going to emerge out of this discipleship who will take the gospel into the next generation to the new sets of challenges that are now confronting the church and that will be for the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years. We've got a dream of people in our churches being in such a deep personal relationship with Jesus that they're, they're abiding with him all day long. When you start that first worship song, there is fire in the room because they're not living off other people's spirituality. We, we've got a dream that the church actually becomes this countercultural community of broken people, but safe. There's no pretense. We're vulnerable. We're open about our own stuff. We're, we're authentic. And that out of our brokenness, we are people are flocking to the church because it's a place of actual safety and the love of Jesus. And we're the new family of Jesus in such a way that, as Jesus said, all the world actually knows that we're disciples because the way that we relate to each other is so radically different than the world out there. We have a dream that marriages and singles are experiencing such a discipleship, such health, that they're flocking to our churches to learn how to be marriages that are a sign and wonder for Christ and how to be singles that are a sign and wonder to Christ and how to live differently than all the pressure out there in the world. We've got a dream that our people in our churches are getting so equipped, they're going into the marketplace and they're actually bringing Jesus there, building community. They're going into schools and politics and business and the arts and you name it and, and, and government and they're actually bringing what we've given them in our churches to change those places. And we've got a vision and a dream that the church is not just showing changed lives of new conversions, that we've got a steady stream of people who are giving testimonies of their lives being changed. But they've been Christians 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. But they're in a constant being transformed by Jesus process. And we're making videos of them and putting them up on a Sunday or on a weekend. And we've got a dream that the church actually is a sign and a wonder and a taste of heaven in this world and that we build these kinds of churches for Christ. So let me invite you to slow down with us as we go on this journey by God's grace that we can actually offer this gift to our churches and to the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have life. And our prayer is that we can unpack this the next couple of days in our own discipleship and then bring it to our churches. With that, let me invite my lovely wife for part two. Thank you very much. Amen.